system needs a lot of work. But again, it goes back to the people who are running the system. If you had people who had good intentions and not bad intentions, not trying to frame innocent defendants, uh, you wouldn't have wrongful convictions. That's John Grisham, one of the best-selling authors of all time. He's written 37 novels, mostly legal thrillers, starting with A Time to Kill. The 66-year-old, though, got his start as a country lawyer and a state legislator in Mississippi during the 1980s. And he's long been concerned with the problem of wrongful convictions. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is Please Go On, where each week we go deeper with the author of an important op-ed. Grisham wrote a piece in Monday's paper praising Virginia Governor Ralph Northam for pardoning three men who served decades in prison for crimes they did not commit. Bobby Mormon Jr., Joey Carter, and Emerson Stevens. All three were represented by The Innocence Project, whose board Grisham sits on, and specifically the chapter at the University of Virginia Law School in Charlottesville. Grisham highlights the experiences of these men to make the case for five systemic reforms to the criminal justice system. Here is our conversation. What prompted you to write about these three cases in Virginia? Well, I'm pretty close to the folks at the uh, Innocence Project here at UVA, and I've uh, supported that project for a number of years financially and in other ways. And um, the director is a friend of mine, Deirdre Enright, runs it, and they're, they're doing a tremendous job with wrongful conviction cases. And, you know, we scheme of ways to get innocent people out of prison, whether it's through litigation, habeas work or whatever, or if it's leaning on the governor or the parole board or whatever, we, we've always got several cases out there that we're, you know, we're convinced that the people are innocent and they're still serving time or maybe, maybe they've been paroled, but they have not been exonerated. And Governor Northam, you know, to his credit, uh, everlasting credit, has, has a um, – his heart's in the right place. And uh, as – as was and is Terry McAuliffe's. Uh, they just believe that, you know, first of all, if you can prove innocence, get them out. Uh, and also, e- even uh, almost as importantly as that is once people have served their time, get them out. You know, let, them, let, them, let them get out. They parole and pardon, whatever. So, yeah, we're, I mean, we just it's kind of a part of my life, the, the innocence stuff. Uh, I'm still... I still correspond to some people in prison who have not known them for 15 years and we're trying to get them out. Uh, so it's still keeps me awake at night. Why is it so easy to convict an innocent person in America? Because jurors, good, honest, law-abiding, registered voters who serve on juries always want to believe police and the prosecutors. We want to, all of us want to. We want to believe that they're honest and above board and that they have found the right guy and hauled him into court and it's time to convict him. And so that's why these cases happen, because the police and prosecutors don't play fair so many times. And the average juror just doesn't want to believe that. And so jurors are not as skeptical as they should be. Uh, I think they're becoming a lot more skeptical now that we've had so many high profile exonerations I think that we are seeing far fewer death verdicts 
in, uh, throughout the country, even in Texas. Uh, there are far fewer death penalty verdicts. Jurors are just more skeptical. Defense lawyers are better. But anyway, along with the answer, I think it goes back to the fact that people who serve on juries just want to believe the authorities. Those who don't know, before you became a best-selling novelist, you were a defense lawyer in Mississippi. The three gentlemen that you wrote about were convicted of crimes they didn't commit uh, 22 to 32 years ago. Uh, you mentioned that maybe jurors have become a little more skeptical in recent years, but how, how does the system compare now uh, to what it was like 20, 30 years ago? Is it, it jurors are maybe a little more skeptical? DNA evidence is more prominent than it used to be, but clearly there are still a lot of deficiencies in our system. How much better has it gotten? How much, how much more uh, better does it need to be? I started practicing 40 years ago and for only 10 years. Uh, I was in a little small rural county in, in North Mississippi, not far from Memphis. And I had a lot of criminal cases. And that was the bulk of my practice when I first started because they were court appointed cases. I didn't have any other clients. And, uh, and I, I, wanted, I wanted to be in the courtroom. I, I wanted to try cases. I wanted to be in front of juries. So that was the quickest route to get there. Back then, we, you know, I knew the police very well, the prosecutors, the judges. The system worked. The judges especially uh, ran a tight ship, and you didn't walk into court with some flimsy case uh, on either side. The police played it straight. The, pro- the lawyers played it. You know, it was a good system. I never thought about somebody being wrongfully convicted. I, n- I never had a client in 10 years who I thought was mistreated or wrongfully convicted. I, I just didn't happen, I, and I, didn't, I was not aware of it. Uh, I stopped practicing 30 years ago. And then somehow I missed the first wave of the DNA exonerations in the mid-1990s. It started about 1995, I think. And um, finally uh, discovered one uh, that I wrote about, The Innocent Man. So uh, to answer your question, there's been a lot of improvement, a lot of improvement because of DNA. The police now use DNA to exclude suspects that probably would have not been excluded a long time ago. So DNA is a powerful tool to help the police, but also to to get out innocent people. I'm on the board of the Innocence Project in New York, and I have been for 15 years, and we have a package of legislation that we push every year in all 50 states to try to make wrongful convictions go away. If you could uh, eliminate or seriously restrict the use of jailhouse snitches, these are the scumbags of the world, okay? These guys, every jail has a druggie who's facing more time and he doesn't want to go back to prison. And the police know this and they'll go to the guy and say, hey, you know, here's the crime. We we think that uh, the so-and-so suspect was involved. We're going to put you in a cell with him for a couple of days and uh, see if he'll talk about it and and see what he knows about it. Well, if the cops are doing this, obviously, deliberately, the prosecutor often knows about it. Sometimes they don't, but they will before trial. And so after two or three days, the snitch pops out and says, hey, the guy told me all about it. He's proud of it. He, you know, he, he was happy when he killed his wife. Just you know, some stupid story like that. And, and the guy has got the details because the cops have given him the details. So he can sound credible. And they take him and put him in another cell or whatever, let him go. He always gets time off for his behavior. And six months later, uh, when there's a trial, they bring the snitch back. And um, he's got a haircut, and, you know, coat and town, and they're hiding his tattoos. And, you know, he, lived, he looks fairly credible. <laughs> and he takes a stand and absolutely lies about what 
the defendant said in the cell. I've heard this in a courtroom before. It's just hard to believe that somebody will go to court, raise their right hand, swear to tell the truth, and then sit there and just tell a totally fabricated story. And that's what jailhouse snitches do. And they always get time off. They always get, uh, you know, a sweet deal. And they always deny that. The prosecutor is in on it. They know that this guy's lying. There's so much garbage in the courtroom uh, these days. These so-called experts who are, are not scientists in what they're saying, whether it's hair analysis or uh, bite mark analysis or the arson or all these different theories that almost anybody can be an expert. And they know enough to fool the judge. They know enough to impress the jury. And so so we're trying to regulate that. We're trying to regulate IDs, police lineups. We'd love to, to regulate and reform police interrogation tactics. False confessions happen in about 25% of these wrongful conviction cases. Think about that. Somebody confessed to the crime that they were innocent of under intense pressure from the police. Especially minors. Especially, oh God, especially minors. Uh, a couple of states so far this year have outlawed deception being used on minors. Our Supreme Court has said that a policeman, or usually two or three of them, in an interrogation can deceive, lie, whatever they can do to a witness to interrogate that person. And uh, that happens all the time. And if they would just, if they would just, there's a tape recorder in the room. They're waiting to use it because they want to tape the confession. Turn the thing on when the interrogation starts, not 12 hours later when the guy's broken and beat down and, you know, whatever. So we're, we're trying to regulate various aspects of these, these causes that, that go into every wrongful conviction case. You just went through kind of four of the five specific fixes that you mentioned in the piece. Uh, the fifth, which is also very important and has actually gotten a lot of attention, is removing the broad immunities that police and prosecutors now enjoy and holding them accountable when they engage in misconduct. A lot of times it feels like you do have, in one of the three cases you wrote about, a, a notorious investigator who later was convicted on separate charges related to lying to the FBI. It, but it feels like a lot of times some of these officers who are doing things that are actually illegal and improper uh, do so with impunity and, and get off the hook. Once you can convince them that there are a lot of wrongful convictions, that's hard to do. Once they start talking about wrongful convictions in these cases that they read about, they say, how does this happen? How, how, how do they get by with this? How, how does the system allow this? To happen, and it's because the prosecutors have no fear. They hide evidence, they fabricate evidence, they lean on witnesses to change their story. You know, they have no fear. They can do anything because they're immune. One case in Texas, the Michael Morton case in Texas, where the prosecutor was so outrageous, he got the conviction, wrongful conviction. Twenty-five years later, Michael got out of prison. This guy was <laughs> the prosecutor was now the judge. And he, he had to step down, and he I think he spent a weekend in jail. He was disbarred. It was again, his conduct was so bad. I think he spent a weekend in jail. To to my knowledge, that's the only person who's ever really suffered a penalty for prosecutorial misconduct. It just doesn't happen. Uh, if you take away the immunity and give uh, these wrongfully convicted men and women a fair shot at the people who locked them up for thirty years. Uh, it would really level the playing field. And so we're, you know, we're advocating for that too.
We'll be right back after a short break. You mentioned the work with the Innocence Project earlier at UVA. Do you encourage young people to become lawyers and pursue innocence work? Is this, you know, you've moved away from the practice of law. Not everyone can be a, a best-selling novelist. Do you advise people to, to go into the profession? I advise prospective law students to, if you have the time and money and you don't have to go into debt, law school is a wonderful experience and it gives you an education that will benefit you in, in many ways. I also tell them there are not many really happy lawyers in private practice. Public interest lawyers are, are really motivated and comfortable with their careers. And and these innocence lawyers, they just love it. I mean, when they, when they walk somebody, when you see them walk somebody out of prison, that's a big moment. That's very motivational. I have people uh, occasionally ask me or write me and say, how I read The Innocent Man. I'm, I'm, I'm disturbed by this case. What can I do to help? And, and I always say, well, first of all, Pick out an inmate somewhere and write them a letter. A letter means a lot to these guys because a lot of them don't get letters, okay? Go to your local Innocence Project, and there are 50 of them around the country. Go talk to those folks and say, how can I, what can I do? And they'll, they'll find plenty of work for you to do. You mentioned twice now your one nonfiction book that you wrote in 2006, The Innocent Man, about Ron Keith Williamson, who spent 11 years on death row before being exonerated for murder and rape he didn't commit. Have you ever been tempted to write more nonfiction about some of these egregious cases? Obviously, you just wrote this excellent piece for us. I'm tempted every day because the these stories are so, as you gather from just talking back and forth, the two of us, they're, they're very compelling stories. And anytime you have a wrongful conviction, you have a lot of suffering and injustice. And when you have stories that, you know, are that sad and infuriating and maddening and, and unfair. They're great stories. They're, they're very compelling stories. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think about them all the time. I think about these stories that have not been told. A lot of books have been written by exonerees, by their lawyers, by, by journalists who follow the cases. And they're all uh, uplifting because injustice eventually prevail. They're also uh, infuriating because it happened. So uh, I'm not sure I'm not sure I'll do it again. It took me 18 months to research The Innocent Man. And that was with a full time research assistant and going flying back and forth all the time to Oklahoma where it happened. And it really kind of knocked me off my stride as far as my publication schedule. And I can write a novel in six months. That's my schedule. And to write a nonfiction book would really uh, slow me down with the fiction. So I'm probably going to take the lazy way out, just keep writing novels. Have true stories of false convictions ever inspired or helped inspire some of your plot lines? Uh, yeah, I wrote a book called The Confession, uh, lack of a better title, a few years ago. Because after The Innocent Man, people were kept asking me, how do, how do these cases happen? How does a wrongful conviction happen? So I, I said, okay, I'll show you. So I wrote a novel, a fictionalized version of uh, a case in Texas uh, called The Confession, and I walked the reader through you know, <laughs> junk science, snitches, bad IDs, bad defense, you know, all the different causes that go into a wrongful conviction. So I've done that. Uh, there was a wrongful conviction at the center of a book called The Guardians. It came out two or three years ago. There was a wrongful conviction 
a subplot in a book called The Whistler a few years ago. So I, I've probably gone to that well too many times, and I, I need to find some more material. <laughs> For those of us who have never practiced law, uh, you, you know, your books have so significantly shaped public perception of the courtroom, the law profession. And often there is this kind of conspiratorial underbelly and it makes for riveting fiction. To what extent, I mean, we talked about a lot of the potential fixes, but are the problems systemic versus the individual actors? And is it the system being corrupt that that leads to some of this corrupt behavior? What What's that interplay like? I think the system would work okay if the people who ran the system had good intentions and were guided by some some better laws. If you just, for example, I mentioned snitches now several times. If you just took that option away from police and prosecutors, just say we're not going to use a convicted felon to testify in this trial. Just you know, just things like if you if you clean up the system a little bit, it would certainly help the authorities. Uh, do a better job. So when you have the death penalty, you're always going to have a terribly uh, complex case because of the death penalty. And everything changes when death is involved uh, from the indictment all the way through the trial, all the way through the imprisonment, all the way through life on death row. Uh, If you took that away, as we just did in Virginia because of our governor, that really frees up a lot of time and energy that lawyers spend, you know, can doing other things. So, yeah, the system needs a lot of work. But again, it goes back to the people who are running the system. If you had people who were up to, had again, had good intentions and not bad intentions, not trying to frame innocent defendants, you wouldn't have wrongful convictions. Last question for your fans. Uh, you have a book set to publish in October, The Judges List. What can you tell us about it? Based on my uh, superficial research, in the history of this country, uh, no sitting judge has ever been accused of murder. And that's about to change. So, <laughs> so <laughs> the judge, all fiction, believe me, we talk about fiction. Uh, the judge in this case is a Florida state court judge elected by the people who for the past 20 years has been a serial killer. And he keeps a list. And um, we got we got we got to catch him. (laughs) (laughs) That's it. That's all I can tell you. John, thank you so much for your time to talk about this very important issue. My pleasure, James. Enjoy it. The day after Grisham's op-ed ran in our newspaper, Ralph Northam, Virginia's governor, issued pardons posthumously to seven black men who were executed in 1951 after being convicted under dubious circumstances by all-white juries of raping a white woman. With that, Northam has signed more than 600 pardons since taking office, more than the total granted by Virginia's previous nine governors combined. It's part of a broader effort to rebalance the scales of justice in a state where conviction rates for African-American men have long been lopsided. As Grisham noted, Northam signed legislation earlier this year making Virginia the first state of the former Confederacy to abolish the death penalty. Please Go On is produced by Julie Deppenbrock with editing from Allison Michaels, Michael Duffy, and Renita Jablonski. Our sound engineer is Dara Hirsch. 
Our theme music is by Ted Muldoon. You can find the link to Grisham's op-ed in our show notes. If you have a moment, please give us a rating and review. I'm James Holman, and I'll be back next Friday with another edition of Please Go On, because there's always more to say. <laughs>